Hey everybody, it's Dr. Mark Hyman. Welcome to the Fat Summit, and I'm here with my good friend and uh, a wonderful man, as well as an extraordinary investigative doctor and thinker in the field of nutrition, who actually I've learned a lot from, Chris Kresser. And uh, you know, you maybe know Chris because you probably get his blog. I do. It's one of the few actually that I do subscribe to because I want to know what he's thinking and what he's saying because it's always something good. And uh, if you haven't read the stuff that he's written, it's thoughtful, it's deep, it's investigative, it brings up issues that uh, nobody else is talking about. And uh, for me, it's just really enlightening because there's very few voices that are really inquiring uh, in a very objective way about what the science says about food and nutrition and health. And, you know, I, I'm just really excited to have you as part of the summit, Chris, because, you know, we know each other and, and, and we've you know, had many conversations about this and we're both seeking to find the truth. And this summit is really about getting the truth of what's going on. And, you know, you, you wrote a, a fantastic book called The Paleo Code. It's and the personal paleo code, which is really an important word, like personal, because as we've had many conversations, there isn't one size fits all. It's not like a high yeah. fat diet works for everybody or a high carb diet works for everybody or high. It's like there's a personalized approach to this that we have to think about. And, and uh, I really would love to sort of get into that with you. And we're going to cover a lot of ground in this conversation. And so, so, so let's start with how you got started in understanding that, gee, maybe the paleo concept was useful and uh -huh. why it had value and tell us what you mean by paleo because, like, could, does that mean just eating, like, steak all day or, like, going, <laughs> putting on a loincloth and going out and, like, hunting a buffalo? Like, what? what is it? Like, right. I know people you see are, my spear in the background yeah, there? Yeah, I saw maybe that. You know, and then people are like, oh, I'm just, like, all I'm doing is eating liver and brains and marrow bones. And, <laughs> what, like, what is, like, what is all that? All right. Well, first of all, Mark, thanks for having me on. It's always a pleasure to connect with you, and I'm, I'm humbled by your introduction, and I, it's just great to be here and have a chance to chat about these topics. So uh, let's see. Your, your first question about how I got onto the paleo approach in general, uh, I got really sick in my early 20s when I was doing some surfing in Indonesia. I was doing a round-the-world trip, and I was living in a, on a small island in Indonesia uh, in a little village surfing and, and got the classic tropical illness, you know, diarrhea, vomiting, delirium, fever, don't really remember much of the three days that there uh, that happened and ended up um, being giardia, entamoeba, histolytica, and uh, amoebic dysentery or, or uh, blastocystis hominis all together at the same time. A, of, so a whole family of parasites. A whole family of parasites moved in <laughs> and it nearly killed me. And it uh, actually then was a long road even getting that diagnosis. It took many years to get the diagnosis. And then, as you know, some of the treatments for those parasites can be even worse than the parasites themselves. So. Uh, it took me about 10 years to rebuild my health, and along the way, uh, just through a lot of experimentation on my own, I discovered, I didn't even know it had a name at that time, but it was, you know, meat and vegetables, some starchy plants like sweet potatoes, nuts and seeds, you know, I called it just kind of a, a real food diet without any grains or legumes, because I found that they irritated my gut, Yeah. and, uh, and then as I began to meet more people in the community and tell them what, what I was doing. They're like, yeah, you know, there's a name for this, right? <laughs> you know, there's a whole, there's a whole community of people doing this. And I was introduced to Rob Wolf, who's, you know, kind of one of the modern fathers, of the fathers of the modern paleo movement. And, and uh, we hit it off, but pretty soon, you know, what I realized in my own journey is that no kind of canned approach that I had learned about, whether it was vegan or raw foods or macrobiotic, all of which I tried, by the way, and, and some for, for many years, yeah. none of those canned approaches worked for me. And I basically had to use myself as a kind of personal laboratory to figure out what did work. And that's why from the very beginning, I've just been really um, a big advocate of personalization, both you know, uh, on my blog and also with the patients that I work with, because you said it at the top, there really is no one size fits all approach. And we, and we have to, the more we learn about gene, genetics and epigenetics and our relationship with our environment and the world around us, the, the more true that becomes, in my opinion. Yeah, so true. You know, it's, it's interesting. I, I remember we met at this event uh, and, there, and <laughs> I was sort of joking because I was like on stage and on one side of me was like a sort of serious, like me, paleo guy. And then yeah. I was like a friend, both of them were really close friends of mine. The other one was like a vegan. 
And they're all doctors, and we're like sitting up there, and I'm like this, back and forth, thinking. You were an excellent peace peacemaker moderator like, in that situation. Like, Wait a minute, if you're a paleo and you're a vegan, I must be a pegan. Yeah, exactly. Joke, you know? No, that's and, that's a great word, and I'm glad you. I mean, because the the biggest misconception about paleo approach is like is is you threw you threw out a few of those. You know that it's it's all meat all the time. You know, we're living, we're sleeping out in the backyard in our loincloths and, right. and um, <laughs> hunting, hunting all of our meals. I mean, I, I think what like, it really, I like the best is a plant-based paleo diet, right? It's like, yeah. <laughs> it's like you if you most- look at it, I mean, you and I could go out to dinner. I'm sure our plates would look almost identical. Absolutely, you know, we, yeah. we'd have very, you know, we and we did share meals together, and our plates did look very similar. <laughs> so a lot of people might be surprised, you know, to to know that. Like, here's this paleo advocate and you, but the reality is, you know, most of the plate is vegetables, plant foods, and yeah. then there might be a little bit of meat or fish or poultry. Uh, not not even necessarily with every meal. So, so let's, let's dig in here, okay? Because like I, I yeah. kind of agree with you, and I found for me it works best. But you know, there's a whole group of colleagues who we know and respect, and who are smart yeah. doctor scientists who are like, no, we should only be eating grains and beans, and yeah. meat is bad for you, and fat is mm-hmm. bad for you. Maybe not all fat now. Maybe we can say you know you can eat vegetable fat like olive oil, avocados, although that's new. And then right. like, although some people still are not saying that. And, yeah. and, you know, but we should really be shunning animal foods and, and for many reasons. I mean, there, we can talk about the ecological reasons and the environmental yeah. reasons in a minute. But I think we're, let's just talk about the health benefits because, you know, I'm a doctor first. And, I, and I'm curious about, like, how do you, how do you answer yeah. that? Because it's, it's a hard question. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I try to answer it with the research and just look at what the research says. And, of course, that's not always easy because there's often a lot of conflicting research. But... I think it is possible to differentiate between good and bad research, and uh, I mean, what we've seen just even in the last year is that the dietary guidelines no longer restrict cholesterol. Uh, the, the most recent published dietary guidelines no longer say that we should pay any attention at all to cholesterol in foods, and that's a remarkable reversal given that, you know, for the last 50 years we've been told that we shouldn't eat egg yolks or uh, any other animal foods that have cholesterol, because if we eat dietary cholesterol, it will raise our serum cholesterol, and everyone knows that high serum cholesterol is a risk factor for heart disease. But right. it turns out that this dogma, which was, you know, everybody accepted, is not actually true. That For the vast majority of people, dietary cholesterol has no relationship whatsoever to serum cholesterol, and that for the few people who do experience an increase in cholesterol uh, when they eat it in their diet, in their blood, they get a corresponding, uh, a simultaneous increase of both HDL, which is the good cholesterol, and LDL, which is the so-called bad cholesterol. That that increase cancels cancels each other out, and it has no clinical significance in terms of heart disease risk. So I think that's a good lesson for all of us just to, to, to recognize that science is always evolving, that what we we were absolutely sure was true 50 years ago, like we laugh at now. So um, it's almost certain that that's going to be true 50 years from now looking back. And from what I've seen uh, in all of the most recent meta-analysis and reviews, uh, there the, the, the research that for so many years seemed to suggest that saturated fat and dietary cholesterol were the enemy is, is weak. It's weak enough that the dietary guidelines have already been changed for cholesterol. And But they still uh, came out and were like, no, 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 cholesterol, forget about it, but fat, don't worry about it. They're but still talking fat, about fat. Yeah, yeah they're like still saying fat. saturated fat you should avoid, but you know, Mark, and many of, of people watching or listening to this know that there have been several books published recently, you know, with a lot of research, uh, summarizing a lot of research showing that the relationship between saturated fat and heart disease is very tenuous. Uh, many large reviews. I mean, uh, the very... big fat surprise. Nina Nina Thai culture. Mean. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I just and interviewed the... her. She's she's going to be on the summit too. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Um, so uh, studies published in in major major journals. You know, uh, high impact factor journals showing that uh, low carb diets, which are higher in saturated fat, not only don't have an adverse effect on heart disease risk factors, but actually improve heart disease risk factors. They increase HDL cholesterol, they decrease triglycerides, they decrease abdominal circumference and you know visceral obesity. 
they decrease blood pressure, they decrease C-reactive protein. So there's all of these effects that are positive from these higher fat, lower carbohydrate diets. That's, that's so, the operative word, right? You have, if you eat higher fat, if you have the bagel yes. with the butter, that's not good, right? <laughs> yeah, or the bun with the cheeseburger. The bun you with know? the cheeseburger, that's not good. It's the bun and, the, and the fries, and the big gulp, right. and the ice cream. Right. It's the that. sugar that turns saturated fats into a problem, right? That's, that's what right, and about. that's traditionally, that's the context that they've been eating in, right? Yeah. I mean, most people are eating donuts and, right. you know, burgers with, with buns and, and fries, uh, yeah. everything combined, and, and we don't... I think that's that's I'm really glad you brought that up because that's one of the big problems with a lot of the research, the observational research is that they're just looking at stand, you know saturated fat intake in the context of a standard American yeah, diet. It's they're not looking at how, you know, someone maybe like me needs to be in those foods. Yeah. And uh, you know, in the in the few studies that we have that have done better comparisons, the 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 relationship that's been proposed between saturated fat and heart disease is very weak. And a matter, as a matter of fact, there's an inverse relationship between saturated fat and stroke. Yeah. So that in people Japan, who eat more saturated study, fat, yeah, yeah. yeah, even have a lower incidence of stroke. Yeah, the problem with all these studies we, we talked about is that you know there's there's population studies which don't look at cause and effect. They see patterns, but you can't really yeah. draw firm conclusions from that. And the, the studies that are actually interventional studies, where you actually give people the food and follow them for years and see what happens. Those are far and few between, and they're hard to do. One, if you just tell people, eat this way, good luck. They probably aren't going to. I mean, the yeah. Women's Health Initiative, they're like, cut your fat from 38% to 20%. Well, they didn't do it. They, they got to 29%, yeah. which yeah. is still improvement. But like the critics will say, well, you know, you, you, of course it didn't work because they didn't go to 10% fat. So that's why it didn't yeah. work. And so, you know, we have a, a really mishmash of research. Which leaves you and I and the rest of the humans out there who haven't read as much yeah. stuff as we all confused. And, you know, so we kind of have to patch together the evidence from human studies, from animal studies, from small trials, from interventional trials, from population studies, from basic science, and come up with like a story that makes sense. And so that's what's so great about what you do. It's what I try to do. And it's like, it's just rare that that happens because you know, you've got the scientists and also they, they actually are, you know, they actually are just like focused on their little microcosm of their world and their work, which has allowed them to go deep, deep into these stories. But on the other hand, like they don't have a 30,000 foot view, which is what's right. so great about what you do, Chris. I actually have these three pillars that I kind of about that, that together form a lens for, that I look through. And one is uh, modern research, you know, observational epidemiological research and clinical research. Another is an ancestral perspective, which we can talk more about. And then the third is clinical experience. Right. And I think when you look at it from all three of those perspectives, rather than just getting too myopic, myopically yeah. focused on one, you have a lot more balanced perspective. And yeah. uh, the people that I respect, like you and, and, and others, who are looking at it from all of those different perspectives instead of one, you know, I, I often encounter writers or people who are super dogmatic about one idea. And I, I say, well, are, you know, have you treated any patients? Have you like, have you ever actually tried this in anyone other than yourself? And if the answer is no, yeah. I mean, to be honest, it's hard for me to really it's put true. a lot of it's faith in, in their opinion. It's you know, true. I mean, I've seen, you know, I don't know, 15,000, 20,000 patients over 30 years. And, yeah. you know, over the years, I've tried low fat diets with them. I've tried higher fat. And I see even doing the same diets. On different people with the same problem, there's different yeah. results. It's like, you know, exactly. how does that work? Like one person, you give them seventy percent fat, and their cholesterol bottoms out, right? It yeah. drops hundreds of points. Other people, you give them butter, and they like their cholesterol goes right up, goes through the roof. And I'm yeah. like, what's up with that? You know, and like, and then what are the clinical implications? And I think you know the message that you said really that I just want to come back to and have you discuss a little more is this concept of like this ancestral diet and the concept of like, like the whole context of our diet, right? It's not just right. one ingredient or one nutrient that matters. It's the entire context. And like, yeah, if you eat, you know, if you eat saturated fat in the context of the standard American diet with 152 pounds of sugar and 146 pounds of flour, yeah, it's not good for you. And if you eat, yeah. if you look at the data on meat, you know, I, I looked at all the data. I mean, I wrote like I wrote like eight thousand words on meat in my new book, 
dissecting yeah. all the research. And it was like fascinating to look at because it was, it was like, oh, well, you know, the meat eaters have way more heart attacks. So you should not eat meat. I'm like, oh, okay, well, let's look at the study. Well, guess what? The ones who ate meat, well, they smoked more, they drank more, they, they yeah. ate more sugar, more sodas, they exercised less, they, they ate meat and eat vegetables, and they had more junk food. Well, guess yep. what? That's all a recipe for heart attacks. So is it yep. the meat or is it the rest of the stuff? And they say, well, we, we control for variables, and I think it's impossible. You can't do that, really. It's yeah. like, you know, there's a, there's a great book, uh, it was published in the 50s, called How to Lie with Statistics. With statistics. <laughs> One of my favorites. That's, that's I love it. <laughs> yeah. There's no way you're going to control for those, and we're, and we're not controlling for, for what we're not looking for. So microbiome, for example, yes. what studies is controlling for the effects of these diets on the microbiome? None. And right. as the more we know about that, the more we know how important it is. Okay. So. Totally agree. So there's two big topics I want to dig in with you now. One is I want to talk about statins. And the second yeah. topic is I want to talk about fat and the microbiome because Great. it's a tricky subject. And I know, I know yeah. you're into this. So I want to talk mm. to you about that. So it's, a, right. it's a tricky subject. And I think we can, we can together dissect it. Let's talk about statins because, you know, just okay. to set the stage, you know, the, the general consensus in the medical community is that statins are God's gift to doctors and to humankind. Mm -hmm. And that we should basically put in the water. And that we right. should get it close, cholesterol as low as possible, and that and that they're they're extraordinarily effective, and uh, everybody should be on them, including you know thirty year olds and kids now and kids, old ladies right. and old men and all of it. So probably, probably our pets eventually. Yeah, our pets, right? <laughs> so you know they want. <laughs> Why to stop with wanted, humans? They wanted to get an approval to sell them over the counter at McDonald's. Yeah. It's like an antidote to the burgers. I don't know. <laughs> so yeah, so that's... how do you how do you contextualize this? mania about statins, you know, where are they shown real benefit? Where are, are, are the questions? And like, what is the harm risk of these drugs? And who actually should be taking them and who shouldn't? Okay, yeah. So just to, uh, contextually, again, I think it's a really good example of the failure of the conventional healthcare system, which as you well know, Mark, is not healthcare, it's disease management. And so that, that anecdote of wanting to give statins to people at McDonald's just says a lot <laughs> about the status of our healthcare system, right? I mean, maybe they shouldn't be there in the first place, and maybe that's uh, why, why they need statins in the first place, or in theory. But, and, and we can, of course, discuss, yes, the, the realities of public health and all of that, but um, you know, focusing more on just statins and their effects... Um, there was a, an analysis back in 2010 done by a doctor named David Newman. I'm not sure if you saw it, Mark. Um, but they they looked at two different populations, those with pre-existing heart disease, so this is secondary prevention, people who have already had a heart attack, and then they looked at people who've never had any evidence of heart disease before, so this is primary prevention. So in the people, and, and, and they, they did an analysis of what happens when those two groups take statins for five years. So in the people who had, had already had a heart attack, 96% who took statins for five years saw no benefit at all. Who already uh, had a heart attack. Who already had a heart attack. That's the highest risk population, of course. Yeah. 1.2%, uh, which is 1 in 83, had their life, lifespan extended, um, meaning they were saved from a fatal heart attack by taking statins. But this was typically on the order of several months, not several years. 2.6% uh, were helped by preventing a repeat heart attack. That's one in 39. Um, but 10% were harmed by muscle damage. So you've got 96% with no benefit, 3.8% uh, had some benefit, and 10% had muscle damage. And that's even in the highest risk population that statins are supposed to benefit from the most. Right. Not really that impressive, in, yeah, in yeah. my opinion. I mean, certainly not as impressive as, as their sales statistics would, would lead you to believe. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, that, 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 is that the number needed to treat data that you're talking about, right? Yeah. Yeah, but it's, it's just a, it's an overall analysis of how many people, uh, yeah, the number you would need to treat, but also specifically by category, um, what is the benefit that they're seeing? Life stand, life, you know, because if a drug prevents a heart attack but increases your risk of cancer and yeah. doesn't extend your lifespan, that's just disease substitution. Right. I mean, no. So, so if you had a heart attack, Chris, would you take a statin? No, I probably I wouldn't. 
Yeah, you probably won't get a heart attack though. So. <laughs> oh yeah, exactly. You know, um, because because what this doesn't pay any attention to is what are the other possibilities. So there was a study you probably saw on meditation in Af- middle-aged African men who had already had a heart attack and showed that meditation reduced their risk of future heart attack by a, a greater margin than taking statins. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to choose that intervention uh, if if I have a choice. But you think? But the, the other population is the, the people who have no heart disease, and this this is the bigger pop, you know population of people, and this is the population that the drug companies are really yeah, targeting. It's like seventy five or more percent of the people who are actually recommended to take statins. Exactly, who and never this had is a heart the, attack, and who may not even have that many risk factors. Exactly, uh, young woman, for example, you know, thirty five, forty year old woman, no family history, you know, total cholesterol of maybe two ten or two twenty, which I would argue is actually probably normal for that age of a woman. And uh, 98% of these people who take statin for five years see no benefit at all. Uh, 1.6% are helped by preventing a heart attack. Uh, And then 10% were harmed by muscle damage and 1.5% were harmed by developing diabetes. Right. So you have an equal number that were harmed by developing diabetes that were helped by preventing a heart attack. Right. Again, we're talking about disease substitution, and what's one of the biggest risk factors for a heart attack? Diabetes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, to me, statins make no sense in, in, in people who've not had a heart attack. You know, someone who's had a heart attack and has familial hypercholesterolemia, that <laughs> might require more consideration, you know, yeah. and, and then, then we get into more of an individual approach where you evaluate it on a case-by-case basis. Right. Um, because that person may very well have a risk level, you know, if they have familial hypercholesterolemia, which means very, very high cholesterol and a strong family history, it may be that a statin makes sense uh, in that case. But I don't think we can extend that to all of the other populations. Yeah, it's tricky. And I did a lot of research on this, too. And it was, you know, interesting. And I, I, I'm a doctor. I see a lot of people taking statins, and I try to convince them about the risks and the benefits. And you know, I see a lot of people with muscle damage. I see a lot of people developing insulin resistance. I see, like, issues with neurologic problems. I see all this stuff clinically. Sexual and, dysfunction. Yeah. yeah, sexual dysfunction. So, you know, these are real things. It's not like, it's like, oh, take an aspirin. That's got even risks, right? Or, or let's yeah. say, take vitamin C. Well, well, maybe we haven't proved that vitamin C is everything or does everything. But you could take it for 100 years. Nothing bad is going to happen. That's right. right. Even at a high dose. Right. And... Here's the thing, too. Uh, I know you know this, but for the benefit of the, the listeners, um, this, the side effects of, and adverse effects of statins are certainly underreported. Yeah. And this has actually been studied by Dr. Beatrice Golum uh, at UC Berkeley here, yeah. right next to me. And she's done some really interesting research showing the extent to which the side effects are underreported is hugely yeah. significant. Yeah. We're not just talking about a small amount. We're talking about a large amount because... Let's imagine a middle-aged man who's a, typically a person who statins are prescribed for goes into the doctor after having been prescribed statins and goes, oh, my muscles hurt or, you know, I'm, uh, my libido is lower or I'm, I'm having some sexual dysfunction. The doctor's like, ah, you're just getting older, you know, right. just like we all have those symptoms and that's it, you know. And so the, the doctor's not going to report it because right. in the doctor's mind, he, he's read the pharmaceutical literature that says statins are safe and don't have side effects yeah. so yeah you know, right, Chris. I mean I, I I'm a you know practicing physician so I've seen so many people report this and if it was a rare thing it wouldn't be a weekly occurrence that I talk to people and find they have a reaction it would be rare and, right. and so yeah you're right and also you, you know these drugs uh, you know can have benefit in some people but they're actually we found that the benefit may not always be from the lowering of the cholesterol yes. it's from the anti-inflammatory effects the antioxidant effects that we didn't even know about before. So, and there's a lot of other ways to lower inflammation by eating the right diet. I think that's the key. And if people say, key. well, you know, if you have a lot of risk factors, if you have high blood pressure, if you're overweight, if you don't exercise, if you smoke, yeah, then there's benefit. Well, like, guess what? Don't smoke. Exercise. <laughs> eat better. Lose weight. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah, it's it's the it's the wrong conversation and the wrong focus. And of course, I don't need to tell you this. You've you've been beating this drum for perhaps longer than anybody. But that's the biggest difference between functional and conventional medicine. You know, right. and conventional medicine is it's like if you have a rock in your shoe and your foot hurts, you take in conventional medicine you just take Advil. 
Right. You know? Right. <laughs> and, right. and in functional medicine, you take the shoe off and dump the rock out. That's I right. mean, that's, yeah. that's the thing. That's it. So the root, it's root cause. Functional medicine, that's what you do, Chris, which is so great. And you have, you know, there's an incredible community of functional medicine doctors around the country and around the world. And you're one of the leading doctors. And you're training people. You're thinking about things. You're forcing people to change the way they think about health and disease. It's, it's really awesome. And you know what? Like, that's what medicine is becoming. And unless you actually... Find a functional medicine doctor and get this perspective. You're not going to learn about this different way of thinking. It's so critical. So, uh, yeah, I mean, the statins is a long conversation. I encourage people to read your – you've written a lot of uh, sort of little little uh, e-books on this stuff that are yeah. great. Uh, it's, it's a big section of my book on statins. And I, you know, and I think that, you know, I try to you know, create a dispassionate view. But, you know, I'm biased. I, I, I see what happens. I see that it's not all about cholesterol. And I, I think uh, people are freaked out if their cholesterol is high. And and I see yeah. it every day. People like have bought the have bought the dogma that if your cholesterol's high, you're in trouble. So I got to take medicine. Well, here's one more thing I think we need to talk about, which is uh, and truly from a functional medicine approach, high cholesterol is a symptom. It's not a disease. Right. And right. so if somebody comes into me and they have high cholesterol, I'm thinking, why is it high? Uh, is it because they have thyroid hypofunction? We know that T3 is required to activate the LDL receptor and take LDL out of the circulation. So if you got someone with even subclinical hypothyroidism, they could have elevated cholesterol. And just correcting that problem, that underlying problem, could lead to a reduction in their cholesterol. And in fact, back in the 70s and 80s, I think doctors were prescribing low doses of thyroid hormone for people uh, with high cholesterol, even if they didn't have, you know, substantial. Yeah. You know, right. clinical hypothyroidism. Right. Then we have a couple other things which which are really interesting is the collection the, the connection between chronic infections and cholesterol. Yeah. Yeah. LDL particles are an, play an antimicrobial role. Mm. And so when we have a chronic infection, especially a gut infection, and those endotoxins like lipopolysaccharide escape the gut and enter the bloodstream, the liver will make more LDL particles to deal with that situation. So you'll see an increase in LDLP. I can't tell you how many patients, men, who've come into me, their main complaint is high cholesterol. They don't even have gut symptoms. I do gut testing. I find that they have a parasite or fungal overgrowth or something like this and a leaky gut. I, I fix their gut and their LDLP goes from 2,300 to like 1,300 with no statin, no dietary change, not even any supplements you know, for high cholesterol. So... Uh, I have a checklist of like six things that I look for when someone has high cholesterol, yeah. and we will systematically go through that list and address all That's of those amazing, right? before I even consider anything that to lower their cholesterol. Yeah, right. What's well, interesting, and the other thing, you know, that, that uh, I, I was just, I was reading a book on a vacation once. It was by Linus Pauling. It was like a biochemistry book, and it was like that's like you and me. That's what we read on our vacation. <laughs> I, you know, I admit it, I'm kind of a nerd, but it makes me happy. So, yeah, <laughs> I just want to know how things work. Like, how I understand. Work? Like, how do things work? Like, that's what I want yeah. to know. And it's like I keep asking yeah. the question, why, why, why? And so I, I'm reading this, and I'm like, it was like about the biochemistry of fructose metabolism and how it affected things in the liver. And I'm like, it was like the light bulb went off. And I was like, you know, it makes acetyl CoA, which goes into the production of you know, triglycerides, it gets in, and it creates more lipids. So it's like this whole concept of de novo lip, lipogenesis, which means yep. our liver actually is induced to produce abnormal cholesterol from eating sugar, not yep. fat. And that was like, what, what? I thought cholesterol came from eating butter and eggs and fat. And, and it was like a big awakening for me. And I was like, holy cow, this is just basic biochemistry. Yeah. And it's like what I learned in medical school, but probably forgot. And the rest of the medical community is totally ignoring. And this yeah. isn't like some quacky idea. This is just basic biochemistry. So the fascinating yeah. thing is like, you know, when you look at the biochemistry of fructose and, and sugar, when you eat it, it actually induces what we call atherogenic dyslipidemia. So it may yeah. not be that you actually have high cholesterol even, but you could have really nasty cholesterol that actually is causing heart attacks. But it's, you know, you can have a cholesterol of 150 but you could have like 2,000 small particles. They could all yeah. be small. You could have very slow HDL, high triglycerides, and all of that is actually what's driving heart disease. And that's yeah. a cholesterol pattern that is driven by eating sugar and refined carbs and insulin resistance. And actually that's eating right. fat fixes it. So you get a fatty liver. One of the yeah. fascinating things I found when I was researching my book that 
the way to reverse a fatty liver is eating Eat like fat. saturated <laughs> fat. It's yeah. like eating coconut oil and like yeah. MCT oil. And they literally yeah. can reverse fatty liver by giving people tons of fat. And you think, well, yeah. how do we get foie gras, right? Which is a fa- right. fatty goose or duck liver that you eat at restaurants, right? Mm-hmm. Guess what? They force feed the ducks sugar, tasting yeah. corn, and yeah. they feed them carbs, and then they get fatty liver. So, like, we know this, but somehow it's sort of like it's not in the radar for doctors. It's so important, too, because that pattern that you mentioned where the total cholesterol is normal or even low normal is just missed because that person will go into the doctor and get a big pat on the back as they're leaving the office uh, because most doctors don't know unfortunately to test for LDL particle number and 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 the number of small or more atherogenic particles or lipoprotein little a and and those markers which are arguably much much more important than total cholesterol. So the um, take home on that is, you guys out there listening, there's a lab test that now is done by LabCorp and Quest called NMR, uh, or it's like nuclear magnetic resonance. Yep. And it's, it's actually looking at your cholesterol under an MRI machine, like a mini MRI machine, mm-hmm. and it tells you so much that you, you would never know by looking at a regular cholesterol test. And if you look at a regular cholesterol test, it's like a 20th century test. It's outdated. Mm-hmm. It shouldn't yeah. be done anymore. Everybody should have this. It's not that expensive. You can ask for And it's covered by it. insurance it's in most cases. Insurance. So like mm-hmm. when you go to the doctor, say, doctor, can I have that NMR lipid test? Because I want that. And I don't want yeah. the regular one. And I want you to tell me what it means. And if you don't know what it means, go look it up and help me. <laughs> <laughs> because, right, so yeah. We're going to have on, on this. Or down, yeah, download my ebook on uh, the diet heart hypothesis. And go. I tell you a little bit about what exactly it means there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it, yeah. It's so it's so important. And and I think the way to fix that actually is eating more fat. And that's what I do for my patients who have this bad kind of cholesterol. I give them a lot of fat and really low sugar and refined carbs and you know lots of vegetables and they do amazing. So Yeah, so that's so you take that one person who that's a lot of Americans, right? You know, that that um, body type overweight. Uh, with with either borderline high blood sugar or frankly high blood sugar, insulin, leptin resistance. That's the, the most common problem. But then there's another patient who I'm sure you have a lot of, Mark. I have more of these because so many people who come to me are already, you know, pretty healthy, fit, paleo type of dieters. Um, I don't see a ton of overweight people in my practice, which is unusual. Um <laughs> But they started Berkeley, this diet man. with you a lot of California. They're all yeah, yeah, that's right. You know, it's what, like what a can selection I say? Bias <laughs> um, but so I get the the person who switched to paleo type of diet with more fat, and their cholesterol went through the roof. And yeah. in that case, I don't necessarily tell that person to eat more fat because eating more fat may actually take them in the wrong direction yeah. if their total cholesterol is four fifty. You know, I mean, I think we can agree that there's been too much focus on high total cholesterol, but that doesn't mean that I'm going to see a total cholesterol of 450 and just shrug it off. I mean, there's there's obviously something that's not functioning well in that situation, whether it's genetic or, you know, environmental lifestyle. I I want to address it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the interesting studies that came across when I was when I was researching my book was uh, this survey of all these hospitals around the country where people had heart attacks and they. They measured the cholesterols of people who came in with a heart attack. And they think they looked at like 500,000 admissions. It was like 60% of all the heart attacks in America or some crazy number like that. And they found that like 70% of them had normal cholesterol. And a huge chunk of them had even optimal LDLs under 100 or even under 70. And what what they found was fascinating was that almost all of them, like everything except about 10% of them, had HDLs that were low, yeah, right, and triglycerides that were high. So that pattern of high triglycerides and low HDL or good cholesterol, that's that bad cholesterol pattern. And you can have a totally normal LDL and a totally normal total cholesterol. That's kind of a lot of totallys in there, but anyway, yeah. it's a lot of <laughs> and Are you sure you're not from California, I Mark? I might be totally from California. <laughs> 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 and, uh, <laughs> and so, so, so I, I was sort of stunned when I read that. I'm like, wow, that is really extraordinary. And like, it's just ignored. Yeah. So here's another interesting statistic. 90% of people with high cholesterol that go on, that have a heart attack, have at least one other major risk factor for heart attack, mm-hmm. like high blood pressure. So even when there's high cholesterol, it's not necessarily, how do we know it's not just a bystander, right. you know, just something that happened to be present. 
because in nine, nine out of 10 cases, someone else has a major risk factor like high blood pressure, which could very well be the precipitating event for the heart attack, not the high cholesterol. Right. So right. we have to be careful not to confuse, as you said before, correlation with causation. I mean, that's like research 101. That's the first thing we learn in our research methodology classes, but it's amazing right. how often that is overlooked. Yeah, and, and the media just gets it literature. wrong most of the time, and they yeah. kind of go for the headlines, not reading between the lines. It's kind of a problem. Yeah. So I think that's the thing yeah. about you and I. We like to read between the lines and see what's actually going on. So uh, I, I want to now dig into this next topic, which is like a whole nother can of worms or maybe a can of bugs, the microbiome, right? And, yeah. and also I want to talk about the effect of fat on mm -hmm. that because it's kind of some questions about that and yep. the effect of what, what you've talked about a lot, which is resistant starch. And yeah. like how do you eat a higher like fat and even a higher protein diet and not mess up your gut bugs? Because mm -hmm. I've seen literature where if you eat a lot of meat and fat, it changes your flora and it can actually create an adverse profile of bacteria that can increase inflammation, increase diabetes. You know, there's the work from Stan Hazen at Cleveland Clinic about TMAO and carnitine, and that gets converted to this compound that's inflammatory and causes heart attacks. And so I think people are scared about and confused. And I just, you know, I took, it took a long time for me to like figure this out. And I, I used a lot of your work to help me think through it. So can you kind of help us as, as listeners think about yeah, you know, the role of the sure. microbiome and, and all that? Sure. So, uh, I know that's about like I a two-hour talk. I just yeah, I was going to say, uh, where to begin? So, um, I have a lot of problems. I mean, I have obviously great respect for um, Dr. Hazen and so the other researchers that were on the paper. But I have uh, definitely some issues with the the, that, the the TMAO TMAO research and the connection between TMAO and heart disease and the idea that eating meat and fat is the primary contributor to elevated TMAO because one of the things that they didn't address in their paper and I still have yet to see them address is that the biggest dietary source of TMAO is, in the fish. is fish by far. We're talking about orders of magnitude higher than meat. So um, if that's the case, then why aren't we seeing studies that where people are keeling over and dying from excessive fish intake? Uh, it's actually the opposite, right? Chris, all it, the data show that fish is protective and we should all be eating fish. absolutely the opposite. And, you know, there's been a big uh, focus on fish oil and, and some studies lately that have suggested that fish oil may not be as beneficial for heart disease prevention as we thought. But the research has been clear all along about whole fish consumption and, the connect, and, and seafood and the connection between heart disease uh, you know, something like a 17% reduction in total mortality, you know, overall risk of death from eating seafood, which is far greater than just about any other dietary factor that's, uh, you know, ever been studied. Right. So I think there's a lot more to the TMAO st uh, story. I, I, it gets pretty complex because uh, there's some complex biochemistry involved. But if you search for my name and TMAO, there's a couple of articles that I've written on it if you're interested in, in um, but the short version would be I don't find the evidence supporting the link between meat and fat consumption and a gut microbiome that is, um, you know, a, a bad microbiome or an, a microbiome that's inflammatory, very convincing. Yeah. I think we're seeing another situation here where if you look at people, if you take one person Let's say they're eating a standard American diet, they're eating McDonald's, lots of uh, fried foods and, and processed and refined foods and sugar and car you know, uh, re refined carbs plus meat and fat, their microbiome is going to be a wreck. But is it because of the meat and fat or is it because they're eating all of these acellular carbohydrates, which we can come back to in a second, yeah. highly processed and refined carbohydrates that have a ton of sugar accessible and they feed the bad bacteria in the upper gut and that is what creates the microbiome that is um, disadvantageous not the meat that those people yeah, are eating yeah yeah, yeah. so that's so great. if you you know if some versus someone who's eating meat um, and and pasteurized meat or wild caught fish and then you know a lot of plant foods non-starchy vegetables and some starchy plants and some nuts and seeds and even legumes that are rich in resistant starch, that person's gut microbiome is going to look very good. Right. And, and I know anecdotally from talking with Jeff Leach from 
uh, the the human gut project, um, he can kind of identify like what a, a paleo type of diet on the the um, you know, the DNA analysis of the of the microbiome that they do, yeah. uh, and it looks very similar to what you, you see in hunter gatherers or people who have eaten these traditional diets who have the sort of Shangri-La gut microbiome that, right, that right, right. he's actually over there trying to preserve right now for yeah. because that's the like last the poop normal human yeah it's the it's the last normal human microbiome yeah it's amazing so yeah. I, I, I want to come back to this, this sort of study on uh, Stan Hazen because I think you know I'm at Cleveland Clinic he's he's an amazing scientist but I did see problems with it like what they did was fascinating they took people who you know, regular Americans and like meat eaters and then like yeah. looked at the effect of the meat and creating this toxic compound. And then they took like a vegan and they found, oh, the vegans, oh, they're, they're bacteria. They didn't have that. But then yeah. like they convinced a vegan to eat a steak. I know. I wondered how they did like, that. That's impressive. Okay. That's impressive. <laughs> anyway, uh, I, I, and then like they were like, well, what happened? And well, what happened yeah. was nothing happened. Like the right. steak didn't bother them and it didn't create this toxic chemical. So the, the take home wasn't don't eat steak is how do you have a microbiome it's more like a plant-based person's microbiome that has good bugs in it and i think that's why i joke about the pegan diet because it's really Mm -hmm. mostly plants with you know by volume right not by calories but by volume your plate should be like 75 percent plant foods and then you know 25 percent you know protein or and the rest is fats and i put you know olive oil and other fats on my vegetables so like it's really understanding that if you actually grow an inner garden that's healthy, you have much more resilience. So so that's that's really the key here. And I, I want you to talk a little bit about how do you grow a healthy inner garden in the context of a diet that has, you know, meat and fat, because that's that's the concern. Yeah. Have. Yeah. So uh, the the Sonnenbergs, I believe, Justin Sonnenberg from Stanford, great yeah. microbiologist, wrote a book about the microbiome. The good guy. The good guy. Yeah. You read it. It's aw- I mean, not you, but I know you read it. Yeah. You really good book. Read it. It's <laughs> awesome. I know I gave yeah. a quote for it, but that's not why you should read it. It's a good book. <laughs> yeah. He, he's great. And I, I think he coined the term uh, microbiota accessible carbohydrates. And so this is what we need to be eating. These are. Carbohydrates that are not digested by humans, by us, we don't break them down into glucose and fructose and uh, absorb those molecules into our bloodstream. They stay undigested in our gut to the, all the way to the colon where most of the beneficial and harmful bacteria that we have resides. And then the bacteria metabolize these carbohydrates and they produce things like short-chain fatty acids like butyrate which we know plays a potent role as an immunoregulator. It reduces inflammation. It promotes T-regulatory cell differentiation. Tons and tons of benefits. And so um, you're not – the way I like to explain it in in layperson's terms to my patients is every bite of food that you put into your mouth, you need to be thinking about how it feeds you and how it feeds your gut bacteria because you have to do both. And so these microbiota-accessible carbohydrates fall into a few – Three categories, basically: soluble fibers, which are found in a lot of pl- uh, plant foods. Like what? you know, like what's fr- the fruits and vegetables. Apples, for example, and pears are really rich in soluble fibers. Bananas have soluble fiber. Berries have some soluble fiber. A lot of insoluble so fiber like a too. Hardship diet. I don't know. Bananas. <laughs> yeah. Berries, yeah. Oh, carrots, squash, yeah. Uh, zucchini. All yeah. you know, all fresh Love vegetables it. and fruits. And then we've got. Uh, non-starch polysaccharides. So these are long-chain carbohydrates that are not starch. And these are things that you, like uh, inulin or fructooligosaccharides, and you find them in things like onions or garlic or Jerusalem artichokes or leeks. Uh, some people might be familiar with the FODMAP approach. Yeah, yeah. The low the FODMAP, these are a lot of the FODMAPs are non-starch polysaccharides. So if you look at a list of FODMAPs, which a lot of people are busy avoiding, um, you know, for, well, for good reason, are, they're because their guts are really screwed up. Right. Yeah. But the, the FODMAPs are actually a lot of foods that will feed your beneficial gut bacteria. And as a, as a side note, there's been a few studies that have shown that a long-term low FODMAP diet, and I think this is going to get to your, one of your questions, has an adverse effect on the gut flora. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's one reason why a long-term high-fat diet I don't think is necessarily a good idea for people who are concerned about their gut well, it's flora. It's better to fix the gut than there's a whole other And then eat those FODMAPs, yeah. Right, right. So 
So that's the second category. And the third category you mentioned was that goes, resist- that goes a little bit goes along with the idea that like take an aspirin if you have a pebble in your shoe, right? Exactly. So- yeah. Like just get on the low FODMAP diet, completely eliminate these foods for the rest of your life. Not only is it a huge bummer, yeah. I mean, try eating at a restaurant if you can't eat onions or garlic, you know, like it's really difficult. Um, But yeah, so the third category is resistant starch. And this is a type of insoluble fiber that is actually fermentable by the gut bacteria. Um, Some types of insoluble fiber are not very fermentable. They they just, they're bulking agents, you know, they, they add bulk to the stool, but they don't they're not fermented aggressively by the bacteria. Like, like, so, like you know, bran, right? Like bran. Yeah, insoluble. and resistant Fire. starch, you know, it's interesting. Resistant starch is harder to find in the diet than these other categories that I mentioned. Uh, probably was easier in our ancestors' diets because they, they ate a broader diversity of plant foods. And when you're starches, resistant, it's resistant to digestion exactly. by us. By us. But it's digestible but it, it, by the bacteria. Our bacteria, particularly bifidobacteria, which is one of the major classes of good bacteria, love it. And uh, the easiest, two of the easiest sources uh, of dietary sources of resistant starch are legumes like lentils um, and potatoes. Just the old humble potato. The thing about potatoes is if you cook them and then cool them, the type of starch changes to resistant starch. And then, so like a, a summer potato salad, for example, it's not going to spike anyone's blood sugar because it's mostly resistant starch, which you can't convert into glucose, and you're going to be feeding your beneficial gut bacteria in the process. So, so cold potatoes we're talking cold about. Cold potatoes. <laughs> and, the, and the more you warm them up and cool them, the more resistant starch forms. Right. So you can do that several times. Uh, you can do it with lentils, and their uh, legumes are generally a really good source I've of resistant starch. Even seen it with starch. rice, where you heat, you cook the rice. Yeah, white rice, and then you and cook, then you cool it, and then you it, cool it, and don't, so you don't eat it, and then you put it in the fridge overnight. Then you eat it, yep. don't heat it up too much, and it's also yep. more resistant. And you got resistant starch exactly, and and I've confirmed this with patients with blood sugar issues with a, a glucometer. Yeah. they can tolerate. Uh, potatoes that have been cooked and cooled, whereas if they have a potato that hasn't been, it'll spike up their blood sugar. So um, the other source would be green plantains, um, which are available in a lot of Latin food markets. And what you can do is slice them up really uh, thin and put them in a food dehydrator, and Mm -hmm. you make green plantain chips. And you can take those around as a snack. They're they're wonderful. Yeah, Bob Red Mill's potato starch. That's, That's what I've been using. Yep. And it's like, you know, it tastes a little bit like potatoes. It's not yeah. a bad taste. And you yeah. mix it in water and yeah. you drink it. And that really also helps. You know, I started using it just because I yeah. kind of like to experiment with stuff. Sure. And I found it really helps. And it also helps, like, you have a deeper sleep, right? Yeah. That's an interesting thing and, and about resistant starch. You see a lot of discussion about that. And I, I think that's because of the gut-brain connection. You know, we know that, that our gut microbiota uh, have a potent effect on neurotransmitter production and regulation and and um, you know there's even uh, an entire theory about what causes depression now the inflammatory cytokine model of depression which holds that it's mostly an inflammatory condition and that inflammation is mostly coming from the gut exactly. so it's yeah. not a surprise to see that relationship no and it's, it's interesting about the resistant starch because when you think of like the thing dr hyman why are you telling me the potato starch like i think you're like the no carb sugar guy like, what are you doing and i'm like well you know, it's a little more complicated, and it doesn't yeah. actually get digested. In fact, yeah, when you look at the literature, uh, it actually improves insulin sensitivity. So, it like, actually yeah. reverses diabetes, which is kind and, of weird, but, And lowers cholesterol. Yeah. And, ha- you know, I, I've had seen patients drop from uh, fasting blood sugar in the pre-diabetic range to totally normal fasting blood sugar from mm-hmm. just resistant starch. Yeah. It's, uh, it's one amazing. thing I do want to mention is... In my practice, at least, uh, so the recommendation is often two to four tablespoons a day for resistant starch. But it's it's important for people, anyone who's had any history of gut problems, to oh, start yeah, yeah, yeah. Sl- start slowly. Yeah, you're gonna have explosions, right? <laughs> yeah, start slowly and build up build up slowly. I mean, I, I had a patient who didn't get that memo who called me and told me that she was literally doubled up in pain. It was actually not funny for for a week. From taking you know four tablespoons of uh, resistant starch in the in the first day, yeah. (laughs) So be careful with that. Go very slowly, but it will it will benefit. Build up to a couple of tablespoons a day. And I I mean that's also I think it uh, the the great thing about potato starch is it's uh, legumes and so you get some additional benefits from those foods. So 
So, yeah. um, you know, the, the, other, the other thing that I just want to bring up, which you're talking about poop and the gut and all that, is, is as I began to do research, I was like, oh, like a lot of the studies that where they tried to sort of induce inflammation in the gut, they gave the rats like super high fat diets and they mm -hmm. got worse and then mm -hmm. causes like metabolic syndrome. And I'm like, what, what's going on there? And I have some thoughts about it, but I want to hear like your take on that. Because you see that in the literature, like the metabolic endotoxemia study where they gave these rats high fat diets and then they end up having, you know, inflammation and leaky gut and insulin resistance and diabetes. And like, how, how do you kind of make sense of that? Yeah, I, uh, to, at this point, I'm not entirely sure how to make sense of that, to be honest. Mm -hmm. um, it is yeah, I'll, something I'll that... I'll tell you. I, I, won't, I won't put you on the spot. I'll tell you what I found out. Okay. Tell me what you think about this. But yeah. when I began to look at it, it's like it depends on the kind of fat you eat. Yeah. So when they did the studies, they were using like corn oil and soybean oil and all these inflammatory omega-6 oils. And it really altered the gut microbiome in a bad way. But when they yeah. actually gave them omega-3 fats and good saturated fats, like that didn't actually happen. It was fascinating to see that. I, I, there's not a ton of literature on it, but I yeah. dug around. I found some interesting studies which sort of qualified. It's not like all fat will do that. No, I agree. I, I've seen those, and I think that's right. I have seen a couple studies where they were even using higher quality fats, and they experienced that effect. I mean, the most obvious thing is, are we sure that rat digestion and you know gastrointestinal physiology is similar enough to humans that we can just extrapolate yeah. that from rats to humans? I'm not that sure about yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, that's number one. Number two, I totally agree. This goes back to the, the, the distinction between the quality of macronutrients versus the quantity. Yeah. So we've been way too reductionist about this for too long where yeah. we just see a fat is a fat, a carb is a carb, protein is a protein, which is absurd. I mean, right. you don't need a, a degree in science to realize that eating an avocado is going to have a different effect on your body than completely rancid, fried, you know, industrial industrially processed seed oil like corn corn oil or soybean right. oil or right. cottonseed oil right. um, same by the same token a sweet potato is not going to affect you in the same way as a donut so right. <laughs> yeah yeah so um, so the third thing is quite honestly I do have some patients who have gut issues that don't respond very well to a super high fat diet and this is one of the situations where I might recommend a more moderate fat moderate carbohydrate diet I myself uh, d just I don't eat a super high fat diet. I, I I'm not afraid of fat, definitely right. not, and I eat a fair amount of fat. But I would say, like, if you look at my plate on a, you know, pretty much every meal that I eat, I'll have you know non-starchy vegetables, some little bit of protein, and uh, and and you know fat that naturally occurs there, and I'll have some kind of starchy plant like a sweet potato or maybe uh, yucca or taro or yeah. or plantains or something like that. It's, it's yeah. pretty balanced. You know, it's pretty right. kind of ho-hum, you know, right. nothing special, no extreme. Like I'm not counting right. my macronutrients. Right. Yeah. I'm just right. eating real food. That's and right. I, think I think that's that, the take that, on here. It's like if you focus on quality foods within each category, yeah. then you don't have to worry about counting calories, counting carbs, counting fat grams. And you naturally eat the right diet. Now, if 80% of your plate was sweet potatoes, that could be a problem, yeah, right? Yeah, but like it's, not, I mean, if you, if you it's pretty hard to do that, though, for most people. Like, I, I mean, the thing that's interesting is I think that's why when you look at the studies on the paleo diet, why it's so effective is that it is kind of like just eat these foods. Don't count anything. Don't worry about you know, the percentage of this or the percentage of that, just eat until you're satiated with these, this list of foods. Right. And it turns out that paleo is more satiating per calorie than Mediterranean or low-fat diets, yeah. so people get full faster, they feel satiated, they eat less, they eat less without right. even trying, and right. that's the Shangri-La for weight loss, yeah, you don't is to hungry, eat, right? eat less it's without like, trying and not be take, hungry. Yeah, you don't need to take Fen Fen and get like hungry. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. a pressure appetite. So, exactly. So I, I want to sort of like kind of end with, with this this concept of, um, you know, the, the, the sort of this macronutrient balance issue. Because I think yeah. if, we, if we sort of focus on, you know, the composition of our diet as opposed to the calories, you're right, we don't have to focus on it. So, so how would you create that perfect meal? Like you kind of listed it, right? It's a little protein, yeah. like greens, yeah. like non-starchy veggies, some starchy veggies, right? Yeah. 
that's for me, that's what works really well. Like a little bit of protein, a lot of actually more non-starchy vegetables, and then a, a serving of some kind of starchy plant. Uh, because I'm active, I, uh, I back there you can see my treadmill desk. Uh, so even when I'm working, I'm often walking, Impressive. and uh, you know I, I, I'm I'm pretty lean. I just have an active metabolism. I found that I just need more carbohydrates yeah. um, than than I, I tried a low carb diet for a long time. It didn't work well for me. Um, yeah. So for me, that's what it looks like. But but I think the takeaway here when you're talking about macronutrient ratios is that for some of my patients. Yeah, they absolutely do better on a low-carb diet. Yeah. They just feel better that way, yeah. and it, it leads to more mental clarity. It manages their weight, uh, and it, it just works for them. Right. Exactly. And then you got someone over here. You know, I have some patients who are like, uh, you know, high-level professional athletes, and they do highly glycolytic types of training that just burn through glucose like it's, you know, going like there's nothing else, and so. They actually do better with like 50% of their calorie intake as carbohydrates, but we're not talking about gels and you know all of the typical stuff that athletes use. They're eating higher quality, nutrient dense, whole food, plant based carbohydrate sources. But it'd be true also that you know like there's guys like Jeff Folick and Steve Finney who've done work on like. The art of low carbohydrate. Yeah, and there's and there's Peter, Peter Atia, you know, yeah. who's written about this. He's a, another low carb. Ben Greenfield. They're they're all like keto ketogenic, you know, guys who do well on very and low carb diet. Too, high performance yeah, athletes. absolutely. So there's like they, a whole they, range of a human capacity to deal with things, and yeah, you have to find out what's right for you. That's really the. That's I think I think like if 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 I get to the end of my life and people say, oh, that Chris Kresser guy, he said you have to do what's right for you and there's no one-size-fits-all approach. I, I think good. I will have accomplished my, my mission. That's great. Awesome, Chris. Well, I, I, I want to ask one more question, which I think, yeah. you know, it's sort, of, it's sort of always in the back of our minds, which is what about all those guys like who are vegans and seem healthy or guys like Rich Roll who's like, Runs yeah. five Ironmans in like seven days on like that guy's amazing, and, and like, I like him a lot. He's yeah. such a nice and guy. Like, you know, you've got like the forks over knives stories where people lose yeah. hundreds of pounds and they reverse all sorts of diseases, and and yeah. guys like Neil Barnard who published research showing that like, all this works. Yeah. And so, yeah. like, how do you contextualize that? Because that's a, that's part of the story we're all trying to fix. Yeah. So I mean, works from like you know Dr. Ornish's studies. Um, it's just difficult to isolate what actually works um, when you're combining a lot of interventions, and it's awesome. Like if you get someone and you move them from standard American diet to a vegan diet, let's say, okay, well, you're eliminating, you know, generally processed and refined foods, flour, sugar, um, More crappy meat, you know, like meat that's cooked in inflammatory oils and restaurants. Um, you're eliminating all the foods that we know are pro-inflammatory and cause problems. So is, are they so it's, improving? It's not, it's not actually what they're eating. It's maybe what they're not eating. Is what exactly. Eating. That's my point. Are you improving their health because they're eating vegan or because they're not eating all the crap that they were eating before? So that's one, way, one, one answer to the question. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the, you know, something that works in the short term may not work in the long term. So there's such a thing as a therapeutic intervention, you know, that, that has a dramatic impact that over time becomes problematic. Yeah. So I, I've seen, I, when I, uh, you know, many years ago, I got into macrobiotics and I was actually training with the macrobiotic chef and we would cook for people who are really sick. And we would often see this phenomenon where people would start the macrobiotic diet from their standard American diet. They would get better. They would feel a lot better. And then months would pass. They'd start to develop dark circles under their yeah. eyes, really pasty complexion. You're yeah. nodding your head. You've seen, I've seen this. that. I've seen those yeah. people. Yeah. yeah. And, and then, you know, what's happened is that you know, what worked initially stops working over time because they start to develop nutrient deficiencies and things like that. Yeah, like I, I, now, I met Michio Kushi when he was alive, and he's not looking healthy. He didn't not look looking good. No, <laughs> no. So, and then, and, and that's, you know, with, with Rich Roll and people like that, the first thing is there are always outliers. I mean, there are always people that I think just due to their genetics and other factors that we may not even fully understand would perform at an extremely high level almost no matter what they do. And right. we all know people like this too, like people anomalies. who eat, yeah. eat like crap. They're just anomalies. So there, there, there is that. But the second thing is that for a vegetarian or a vegan diet, the key thing that determines 
how someone is going to do on that diet is how well they how how well they do converting precursors into more active forms of nutrients. So let's take beta carotene. Beta carotene doesn't really play an important role in the body, but it is a precursor to retinol, which is the active form of vitamin A, which plays an incredibly important role in the body. We can all convert some beta carotene to retinol. Uh, actually, there's a small percentage of people that can't make that conversion at all, and those are the yeah. people when they do a juice fast, they turn orange because of all, oh, all yeah. the carotene. Juice, I might know? be that guy because I was like, why? I was like, why are my palms? Why are my orange? palms like, orange? Like, yeah, so, so that might be why you feel better eating some animal products that have preformed ret retinol in them. Yeah, so so someone, <laughs> someone who can't make those convert. So then you have uh, alpha linolenic acid, which gets converted into EPA and DHA, it's which like are the flax important oil, like flax, walnut. You yes. have uh, less than three percent. Uh, one half of one percent actually gets converted into DHA, but the, and that's in a healthy person. So you uh, you take a person who's deficient in the nutrients that are required for those enzymatic conversions, they're not going to make that well. You've got vitamin K1 that needs to be converted into vitamin K2. Right. Some people don't do that well. Right. So I would assume that Rich is awesome at those conversions. Or maybe and, he's taking and, vitamins. And maybe he's taking vitamins <laughs> too. We don't know that, but um, you know, I'm I'm willing to to posit that there are people out there that do those conversions really well. Those are the people who, when they switch to a vegan or vegetarian diet, they do well for a longer period of time versus someone who switches to a vegetarian or vegan diet and within three months, they're a total basket yep. case. And we all, we've all seen these people. And there's like low so, fat and high fat vegans, right? And then I think they're, they're quite different. And absolutely. It's a new work by Dr. Jenkins from University of Toronto looking at high fat vegan diets actually having better impact on weight and health and even lipid levels, creating better lipid profiles by eating like avocados and olive oil yeah. and nuts and all the stuff that people are afraid of when they eat low-fat diets, right? Yeah, and we, I mean, at the end of the day, human beings, when we're healthy, we're pretty adaptable. I and mean, we have examples of people like the Tukacenta and Papua New Guinea who ate 97% of their calories as carbohydrates. <laughs> Pretty much they ate sweet potatoes with the few bugs that happened to be on the, the sweet potato. That, that was their diet. And they were lean. They didn't have a high blood sugar, obesity, any right. metabolic or health problems, no evidence of heart disease at all. And then you've got, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, people like the Maasai in, in Africa and the Inuit in in um, northern part of the world who eat very high-fat diets and also seem not to have those diseases. But the difference is, you know, they weren't eating cheese doodles and drinking big gulps and sitting on their butt watching TV for eight hours a day. It's all the overall quality that matters at the end of the day. Is what it's you're the saying. quality that matters. Eat it's real eating food. real food. Yeah. Um, and of course, there are things we haven't even talked about like physical activity and sleep and stress management, other yeah. ways that our lifestyle today differs from the ancestral norm for human beings that I think are equally significant, but we'll, we'll have to cover that on a, on a so different topic. Chris, we could talk for hours. Like, I know we <laughs> yeah. could talk for hours. We have. And we, we, have. Really <laughs> <laughs> we have. So, so is there anything you're excited about coming up? Anything you want to share with the audience about what you're doing? And, you know, yeah, sure. I, I just uh, launched the Kretzer Institute, which is um, an organization that I uh, am, am uh, really excited about. That I established to train the next generation of practitioners who are interested in combining functional medicine with an ancestral perspective. So oh, great. Um, that training is starting next year. We've already finished enrolling the first cohort and uh, got 180 people from around the world, doctors and naturopaths and people of all different disciplines. And I know you know this, Mark, with your role in the IFM. I just feel like, um, you know, my practice has been closed to new patients for the better part of the last four years. There's only, yeah, there's only so much time we have, and I think the biggest contribution I can make is to help get other people out there who are able to practice this kind of medicine. So important. Yeah, we have we have 1,200 people on a waiting list at Cleveland Clinic. Yeah. We are hiring doctors and nutritionists like crazy. We can't keep up with the demand. We have our IFM courses, the Institute for Functional Medicine. They're oversold. We have to add yep. – we used to have like 20 people in a class once a year. Now we have 400 people five times a year. And we, we can only do that because we need preceptors and proctors and we have to have the staff to come do it. So it's like we right. actually couldn't do more and all the modules are sold out. I mean, I can't even get my friends in. We're like, can you get me into the course? I'm like, 
I know I'm the chairman, but like I can't. Like there's, it's, yeah. that's it. Like we're still, yeah, like, yeah. I mean, it's it's uh, in a way, it's a good problem to have, but it's you know, it's the work you're doing at Cleveland Clinic. I'm so grateful because. Um, you know, a lot of people say, oh, well, I, this, the only way this is going to change is if we get this to be more legitimized. Yeah, and right. the, what you're doing in the Cleveland Clinic is such a huge step in that direction so that we can start getting insurance companies and a you know, conventional model to pay it's attention. Happening. It's happening. And eventually United they're going to figure out, you know, if they can prevent diabetes from ever yeah. happening in it's someone. Happening, for, it's happening. I guess Last week I was in Minneapolis and the United Health Group is there and they asked me to come and they spent three hours with me like basically picking my brain and wanting to collaborate to figure out how to scale functional medicine because they saw it as one of the greatest innovations of the future. And I'm like, holy cow, this is a billion dollar insurance company and it's not like yeah. I'm fighting down the door and say, hey, listen to me, like this is the future. Yeah. They're like, where yeah. are you? Come help. Can you work with yeah. us? Can you quit your job? I'm like, no, <laughs> but like, right. let's figure it out. But it's, it's a no brainer, right? I mean, if people really understand it, there's no one that's not going to get behind this. So that's it's right. really exciting. That's and right. thank you so much for all of the work you've done. And you've been such an inspiration for me and all of my patients and readers. And I'm, I'm just grateful to be a part of it in some small way. Oh, we're, all, we're all doing our part. Thank you so much. And I would check out Chris's website, chriscresser.com. I was serious. Like I am on his blog list and I don't get a lot of junk mail because I don't like it, but this is the one I read. And also all the little eBooks and his book. And, you know, he's just, he's just a great story. He's got podcasts. Like it's just deep. It's like, if you're a nerd like us, then, you know, if you, that's the place to go. Like, you know, it's not, it's not, light it's like deep dive and i i love it so thank you chris for contributing that to all of us and uh, have an awesome day and uh and uh like, let's just keep on going with the conversation i'm i'm right with you mark thank you